As we continue our series through the book of Exodus this morning, we've been asking the question, who is God? And using this one particular story in the book of Exodus as a lens into the heart of God. And that story takes place over three chapters, Exodus chapters 32, 33, and 34. So last week, we talked about chapter 32. And chapter 32 introduces to us the whole golden calf saga. And we talked about that in detail. Before we get any further into that, I want to say something quickly to all of you. I want to thank you, first of all, for how encouraging you are to me. I really love standing in the foyer like preachers are supposed to do and shaking everybody's hand as you walk out on Sunday mornings and getting all the, you know, good job preachers or, you know, I didn't fall asleep today, so well done preacher, you know, that kind of stuff. I love the compliments. I love the encouragement. It means the world to me. I want to let you know, though, the thing I love more than that is when you ask me questions. And several of you did last week. You said, well, what about this? You didn't talk about this, and I'm wondering about this. And and I want to encourage you to continue to ask those questions. The reality is to try to take chapters this full and rich and deep and condense it into a short sermon is really unfair to the text. But this is the task I have in front of me. And so I realize I will be glossing over some things that you might want to know more about. Please pursue those questions. Ask me if you want, and I'll tell you what I've studied, but I would love to know even more that you're pursuing them on your own throughout the week. I can remember the first time we went to Yosemite. How many of you have been to Yosemite before? Okay. We drove through Tunnel View, and I've always said it, like God is showing off in Yosemite, right? Like, look what I can do. And I can remember the first time I drove out of that tunnel and that view came into view. And it literally takes your breath away. And you've got to sit there with, you know, all other million and a half people that are there that day and try to get your turn to take a picture, right? For you to look at what we're going to look at together in Exodus chapter 33 this morning, and go home and determine that you've learned everything you need to learn about that passage would be like seeing a postcard from Yosemite and deciding, I don't, ever, I don't ever need to go there in person because I saw a postcard, right? There's so much more to experience on your own. And so I, I just, just to say, what I'm trying to do in this series is just whet your appetite for a deeper understanding of who God is through these passages. And I hope you'll continue to ask questions. Ask the hard questions. Ask the questions that I don't address. Ask the questions that the text begs of you, but that we didn't have time to talk about. But please ask the questions and pursue the answers to those questions, because that's where you will grow in your relationship with God. Okay, so get into Exodus chapter 33. We talked about 32 last week. Moses has been up on the mountain too long. The children of Israel panic. They demand of Aaron that he make for them a God to lead them into the promised land. So he tells them, take off their jewelry, and he forms from that gold an image. And it's the image of a golden calf. And we talked about last week how whether they were trying to make an image of Yahweh or replace him entirely, either way, they are breaking one of the first two commandments and making an image either of a different God or of God himself. And he prohibited both of those things. And let me ask you real quick, did God ever make an image of himself? Somebody said yes, and that is the answer. The answer is yes. Go back to the beginning. When God created man, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. When humans are living in faithful covenant relationship with their God, they are the only image of God that this world needs. 
But when we stray from that covenant faithfulness, what happens? Well, then we do things like make golden calves and bow down and worship them, right? Something has gone terribly wrong. And that's what happens in this chapter. Something has gone terribly wrong. So if you remember the story just quickly, Moses is still on the mountain and God tells him, you need to go down and take care of your people, remember that, because they are rebelling against me. And Moses, not fully understanding exactly what's happened, pleads on behalf of the children of Israel, please forgive them, because God's initial intent was to do what? Destroy Israel and start over with Moses, right? I'm going to start over with you. They're too rebellious in nature. Moses pleads on their behalf and God relents. He decides not to destroy them. But then Moses goes down from the mountain and he sees with his own eyes just how terrible the scene is. And he gets angry and he tells the people to take up and kill their neighbor. And we find this group of people that dies that day because the Levites have decided they're on the Lord's side and people are going to pay with their lives for the sin they've committed in that moment. It's a terrible scene, and it's one that makes us ask hard questions, right? Like, who is God really? What does it mean to be to have God angry at, at you because of the sin that you're committed, and what can we expect from God when we fall short like the Israelites do? So all these people die, and then Moses continues to ask on their behalf. And we, we talked about how Moses found favor with God, and the whole story ends with a plague that God sends on the people. And so it's left in kind of a confusing position where we see God say, okay, I won't destroy the people, but clearly he's still angry and the children of Israel are paying dearly because of the sin that they've committed in this chapter. And so clearly you get to the end of the chapter and things are not fully resolved. And Moses understands this. And this big question mark hangs over the whole chapter where you remember Moses tells the Israelites, I'm going to go to God again and perhaps he will forgive you for what you've done. And so we get to the end of that chapter and it just ushers us into the next part of the story in chapter 3 that we're going to deal with now, trying to figure out what is God really going to do with Israel. He's not going to fully destroy them, but he's punished them and he's clearly still angry. What will satisfy that anger? And what will happen between God and his covenant people who have proven from the very beginning to be so unfaithful? And so let's dig into chapter 33 and try to answer some of these questions this morning. The question that remains in Exodus 32, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So what is possibly going to happen that might make atonement for Israel's great sin here? Let's look at the first three verses together, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, the first three verses. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. The first thing I want you to notice is, God has not abandoned the promise he has made to his covenant people. He's still angry, But he has not decided to destroy them. Instead, he's going to give them the promised land just like he had initially indicated. So, Moses, take your people and go. I have not abandoned my promise. I'm still going to give you the land that I promised to your fathers. Verse 2, he says, I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And here is the the entire crux of this chapter and where all the drama begins to unfold in this one statement. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you this land, but 
I will not go up among you. I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God is telling them, I will give you the promise I initially made to your forefathers. I'm not going to abandon that promise, but I am not going to go with you. I'll send my angel. I'll make sure that you get there. I'll make sure that it all transpires the way I said it would, but I am not going to go with you. And this is devastating information for the children of Israel. And this is what I want you to see in this chapter is why this is so important. So then we get to the next few verses, verses 4 through 6. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And I want you to think about that. God's still giving them the promise, but he won't be with them. And for them, the promise no longer matters because it's overshadowed by this disastrous word that God won't be with them anymore. And this giant question mark remains, how can they be the people of God if God isn't with them? How can that possibly happen? And so the people are in mourning. It says no one put on his ornaments. They're in mourning. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. You ever been so mad at someone that you had to get away from them because just the sight of them would send you into an uproar, right? You ever been that mad at your kids, parents? I just, I need you to go away for a few minutes so I can calm down. God is furious with his children right now and he does not want to be in their presence. I need you to go away. Because if I'm in your presence now, I'm just going to consume you. That's how angry I am with what you've done against me to violate this covenant I've made with you. So he says, so now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. God is still deciding what he's going to do with this rebellious people. What role do you think Moses might have in this decision-making process? Verse 6, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And i got to be honest, I don't know exactly what the stripping of ornaments is all about, except that whatever it is, it indicates to God that they realize just how serious what they've done is, and that it represents the mourning that they're going through, understanding the weight of God's anger here. But what I want you to see is how disastrous this really is. And Moses is about to articulate this. Who are they if God is not with them? They're not a people whose God angel protects. They are the people who God is with. His presence guides them. How has that presence been showing up to them so far, by the way? Through what? What two things? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? His presence has been with them. If that presence is gone, what do they have left to hope in? That's the question. And so we get to this next section, and it seems like when you read through this casually, that this is a weird aside. It doesn't really have anything to do, like Moses went off on a tangent here, but it's actually vital to the story that's being told. We're given a glimpse into the relationship between Moses and God. And what we see clearly is how much God favors Moses. They have a special relationship. Not everyone in Israel enjoys the relationship that Moses has with God. And that's detailed here in this passage. So follow along with me starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord 
would speak with Moses. So what's going on here? You've got this place, this tent, and of course this is just alluding to the tabernacle that would come next, but there's this one place where God's presence would descend on that place. And who is the only person who is going into that place to commune with God? It was Moses. The children of Israel aren't casually strolling into this tent so they can have conversations with God. Moses is the only one doing it, and he's doing it on their behalf. And so it says in verse 10, And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. They were moved by this visible expression of God's presence descending on this tent, knowing that Moses, as their leader and representative, would be going into that tent, into the presence of God, to have these conversations with God himself. And look at how this is described. It says in verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This passage is essential to us understanding what's going on in this chapter because we now understand the relationship Moses had with God. He is a friend with God. He is going into the presence of God where no one else is allowed, and he's talking with God like someone talks with his friend. You think about the intimacy there in that relationship. God favors Moses. And so Moses is in a position because of that favor to do what no one else in Israel could do. God is so upset with us, he doesn't want to be around us anymore. Who can talk to God on our behalf? And clearly the answer is there's only one person qualified to do that. And who is it? It's Moses. Moses is the only one who has that kind of relationship with God that he can enter into the presence of God and have that kind of conversation with him. So that's what this story is telling us. Moses is the only one that could possibly bring Israel and God back together. And so we get into the next section here, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. God, if your presence is gonna, isn't going to guide us into that promised land, who is this angel you're talking about? Who is going to be a substitute for you that would possibly lead us where we need to go? We need your presence, God. And so he says this, I, You have said, I know you by name, and, yet, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And do you catch what Moses is doing here? He's asking the question that this whole series is about. Moses has this intimate relationship with God. He talks with him as someone talks to a friend face to face, but he's not fully convinced yet that he really understands who God is. Like, I need to know you, God. I need to understand your thought process. I want to know why you're so angry, and I want to know what I can do about it, because I'm confused here. You tell me that I have favor with you. You tell me how much you care for me, but yet you're not telling me the whole thing here. There's something to this story I don't understand. I want to know what's going on. And so Moses does this in verse 14. He said, God says, my presence will go up with you, and I will give you rest. But listen to Moses in verse 15. He's not satisfied with that answer. He said to him, If your presence will not go with me, 
don't bring us up from here. If it's not going to be you personally going with us the way that you led us out of Egypt, then there's no point in us going forward because without your presence, we are nothing. He articulates that exact thought. Listen to what he says in verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What was it that made the Israelites special. What is Moses saying? It's the fact that he went with them. That the nations around them knew that, that God is leading them out of Egypt. The story the nations were telling wasn't of a rebellious, strong-willed people that fought their way out of Egyptian bondage. It was about this people who God had led out of Egypt. And did you hear about the things the Israelites, God did for them? That's the story the nations around them are telling. And Moses is saying, God, if it's not you personally leading us from here into the promised land, then we might as well abandon this whole thing. Because we are nobody if we're not the people whom you dwell with. And so he pleads with God, don't take your presence from us. Okay, I want to do something here for just a quick minute this morning. I want to use this as a way to introduce you to two very important biblical concepts, okay? And, and I want to do it through the lens of a contrast between Moses and Jesus. And all of this that's happening through Moses and Moses' relationship with God is really a foreshadowing that points us towards the ultimate work of Christ as Messiah. And I want to show you two things. For some of you, maybe you've already explored this. For some of you, maybe you've never thought about this before, but I hope it will be useful to you. So let's explore the contrast between Moses and Jesus for just a moment through the lens of this story. Number one, this idea that God's people are nothing if they're not the people that God dwells with. Who are we? We are a people who God dwells in and through. Okay? And I want to show you two different passages. Let's start in Genesis chapter 3. Turn over there if you would. Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3 is the story of the fall. And we know the story. The serpent entices Eve. Eve eats of the fruit. Eve gives it to her husband. And Adam eats of the fruit. And now God is going to approach them after they have sinned. And something has drastically changed about their relationship with their creator. And I just want to show this to you. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God doing what? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I don't know what, what your mental picture of the Garden of Eden is, but I hope that this is its foundation. That above all else, the Garden of Eden was this place where heaven and earth overlapped, where God dwelt with his physical creation. They realize the weight of their sin. They know they've rebelled against God and they hear him walking in the garden. The presence of God is there with his people. This is what God intended for his creation from the very beginning. That he would dwell with his creation. Adam and Eve hear him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It says, And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, listen to this, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God goes on to ask the question, How did you know you're naked? Who told you that? Right? But do you see how something has changed? Something's gone wrong. 
God is there with them, and instead of them craving that intimacy with God, now they do what? They hide themselves. They're terrified of his presence. Something has gone wrong. The way God intended for his creation to live was always in fellowship, in communion with him, but also in his presence. This is the story we're told from the very beginning. And of course, the rest of the story of Scripture is about how does humanity exist when separated from the presence of God? And the answer to that is clear. We're a train wreck. We're an absolute catastrophe when removed from the presence of our Creator. And so what do we find in the rest of the story? God begins to commune with the patriarchs. He begins to show up in interesting ways so that he can fellowship with them. And then when he brings Israel out of Egyptian bondage, his presence is with them, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. Then we've got this tent of meeting that we talk about in this very chapter where Moses puts this tent up and God's presence comes and fills that tent. The same way he would fill the tabernacle with his presence. The same way later on, after Solomon built the temple, that God's presence would fill the temple. Later on, there's this devastating story in Ezekiel of God removing his presence from the temple. And what does the temple become if God's presence isn't in it? It's just a pile of rocks, right? Which is exactly what the temple was reduced to several times in its history. Solomon builds the temple. Eventually, the Babylonians come in. They destroy the temple completely. Then you read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the Persians release them to go back to their homeland, and they rebuild that temple, not to its previous glory, but they rebuild it as best they can, and God's presence comes and fills the temple again. Later on, Antiochus Epiphanes comes, and he does major damage to the temple, and then Herod undertakes this huge project up to and during the time of Jesus where the temple would be rebuilt and it becomes one of the wonders of the ancient world, this massive temple complex. What is the temple if God's presence isn't there? This is what the temple is. A representation of this very idea that Israelites are nothing if God's presence doesn't dwell among them. And that goes true for all of God's people. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God's presence among his people again. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees jump all over Jesus because his disciples are doing the unthinkable. They're picking heads of grain and eating them, right? And they're asking him about that. And Jesus has some great answers. But among that, he drops this beautiful gem. He said, something greater than the temple is here. Who's he talking about? Himself. Right? God is dwelling in me in a way that he never dwelt in the temple. It's all about the presence of God among his people. Jesus is going to leave, but he starts telling his disciples in John chapter 14, it's to your benefit that I leave, because when I leave, I can send you whom? The helper, the Holy Spirit, who will do what, by the way? Dwell in you. First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about sexual sin as it deals with Christians, and he says, People can commit all kinds of sins, but when you commit sexual sin, it's a sin against your own body. And the reason that's important is because your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit. Who dwells in you, he says. We become individual temples. The story is about God dwelling with his people, right? So you look at the bookends of Scripture. All that unfolds in the middle. But in the beginning is Genesis 3. God walking in the garden with his creation. And there's sin doing damage to that reality. How will God return back to that full communion with his people? And then watch this. Revelation chapter 21. Turn over there if you would. Revelation 21. If you want to know what the Bible is about, 
This is the story in a nutshell. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God will accomplish his will fully when that new Jerusalem comes down to earth, and we get to dwell with God again. We get to walk with him in the cool of the day in the garden again. What an awesome image. And this is the story the Bible is telling us. We're introduced to this here in this story with Moses. This idea where Moses comes to this heavy realization that, God, if you remove your presence, we're nobody anymore. You have to stay with us, God, because this is the essence of God's people. Look at Exodus chapter 33 in verse 7. Exodus chapter 33. So let's go back to where we were. And I just want to show you something quickly. It's one of those things I think is awesome, and I hope you will too. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp. This is that tent that became the place where God's presence would come down and fill that tent so Moses could have communion with him, right? So this place where God's presence is found is in this tent. It became the tabernacle. It eventually became the temple. It starts with this tent. Moses would pitch the tent and God's presence would fill the tent. Okay, you with me? All right, now turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John starts off his gospel in the beginning was the Word, help me out, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, now you skip down to verse 14, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And the Word did what? Became flesh. He became human, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to talk about that glory more next week. But what I want you to focus in on is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is how our English translators bring that idea to us. You know what that word literally means? It means the Word became flesh, and he pitched his tent among us. What is he doing here? He's doing what Moses did, or what God did with Moses. He's bringing his presence down fully and manifesting it among his people so that his people could have full communion with him. Jesus does that for us. The word became flesh and he pitched that tent among us so that he could dwell among us and we could have full fellowship with God. People look at the Bible and they're critical of it and they think, ah, it's just a bunch of random stories thrown together. There's there's nothing connecting them. Baloney. Man, this is awesome. This is awesome. And I'm positive that John had that story in his mind when he writes these words. This This is our tent. This is our tabernacle. This is our temple. Except it's better than the temple because it's God in human form. You think about that. Okay, the other thing I want to talk about is this idea of Moses serving as an intercessor. And this, again, gets so powerful for me. It says in John chapter 9, verses 24 through 34. Okay, actually turn over there. Let's read this quickly. 
John chapter 9, starting in verse 24. And I hope you'll write some of this down so you can explore this more on your own as you get time. John chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Jesus has healed a man who is blind from birth. And they take that man and they bring him to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are questioning him, right? As if he needed to have a reason to be healed. Like, you didn't do this the right way. you got to explain this to us, right? And of course, they find out who it was. And now they're really mad because... Jesus didn't have a right to do these kinds of things. The real problem, though, is that he did it on the Sabbath. Okay, so we get to verse 18, and we say, uh, excuse me, starting in verse 24, it says, For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Glory be to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, and they're talking about Jesus, by the way, we know Jesus is a sinner. This is what the Pharisees are saying. So you explain to us how this sinner could have taken away your blindness. And this is the man's response. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Listen to this guy. I love this guy. Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him. They're mad now. Saying, you are his disciple, but we, and listen to the pride in their voice, we are what? Disciples of Moses. Now, they're not wrong for saying that, but listen to what happens next. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What a great preacher this guy turned out to be, huh? They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. This man is hinting at something. That yes, Moses is vital to the history of our people, but something better than Moses is here. And what Moses does in this role of intercessor, where he intercedes on behalf of the people to God, is all foreshadowing the need of a better intercessor to come. And he did come, and his name was Jesus. And this man is trying to, in in his ignorance, explain to the Pharisees who are supposed to get all this, that I don't know a lot of stuff, but I know this guy did something even Moses couldn't do. He healed me. You guys figure out how he did it. Then we get to Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 26. This is Peter's second recorded sermon. I won't for time's sake read through all of it. I hope you will. But he quotes from something here. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Please take time, read that passage and understand the full context in that sermon. But the whole point is, Peter is reminding them, Moses told us that someone better than him was coming. And Peter says, I'm here to tell you about who that man is. His name is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, I hope you'll read the whole chapter when you get a chance. But the Hebrew writer reminds us, he says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as what? As a son. And we are in his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. In chapter 3, the Hebrew author makes a very bold statement, which is that something better than Moses is here, and his name is Jesus. Okay, now let me show you something else cool. 
Go back to chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And look at verse 32. As Moses is interceding on behalf of the people, right? As he's pleading with God for forgiveness and mercy on behalf of the sinful people, he says something profound in verse 32. He says, but now, and he's talking to God, if you will not forgive their sin, he says, excuse me, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses stands in the place of the sinful Israelites, and he says, God, forgive them, I'm pleading with you, and if you won't, then wipe me out as well. This is what an intercessor does. He's interceding on behalf of the people. Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Jesus is on the cross. And he's endured all kinds of things. He's been beaten. He's been hit. He's been spit on. He's been insulted. He's been dressed up like a king and mocked. He's been asked to carry his own cross, which he doesn't have the strength to do. And they have to ask a stranger to help him in that process. And then on top of it all, as he's crucified, there's two common thieves crucified with him. One on either side. And as this is all unfolding, Jesus says this. He says, Father, forgive them. Why, you remember? Because they don't know what they're doing. What is Jesus doing in that moment? He's interceding on our behalf. He's doing what Moses did. He's just doing it in a way that Moses never could because something better than Moses is here. Moses served as an intercessor as a faithful servant to God. Jesus serves as an intercessor, as son of God, as the word having taken on flesh. As God among us, he fulfills that role. First Timothy chapter 2, 5 and 6, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's not Moses that stands between us and God now. It's Jesus, the ultimate intercessor. And he's the one we need. They needed Moses in that moment to intercede for them. Exodus 33, verse 17, and we'll, we'll end with this passage in our study here. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. God, don't lead us out of here unless your presence will go with us. And God agrees to that. He listens to Moses' pleading. The intercession works. This very thing that you have spoken, Moses, I will do. Listen to why. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. You're right, Moses. I do love you. And I do know you. And I will do what you're asking me to do. Israel needed Moses in that moment. No one except Moses was in the position to be able to intercede for them. No one could do that. Only Moses, who talked with God like a friend face to face. He was the only one qualified to do it, and he did it. They needed him in that moment. And I'm just trying to show you this morning that like they needed Moses, we need Jesus today in that role on our behalf. John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In those moments when you are overcome 
by the reality of your own sinfulness and you know God is angry with you and you're wondering, who will ever stand between me and God? Who will make atonement for me? Who will plead my case before the throne of the Almighty? Who will vouch for me and say this one is worth saving? Who will ever bring me back into covenant relationship with my God? Who will ever convince God that I'm worthy of another chance? That man's name is Jesus. And he stands between you and God this very moment, not as a servant, but as a son. That man who was crucified on that cross, who in his dying breath is saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That Christ has been crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is exalted to the right hand of God in heaven, and he sits there on your behalf as your advocate and as your intercessor this morning. And if you have not bowed your knee to him this morning, what on earth are you waiting for? We have an intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. And nothing in this world gives me hope like that. As Israel is trying through their mourning to come to terms with, what will God do with us now? We're about to find out the end of that story next week when we get into chapter 4. But Moses intercedes on their behalf and God extends them mercy. And Christ is doing that for you this morning. Won't you take advantage of that this morning by putting him on in baptism, by confessing him as Lord and King? Whatever you need to do this morning in response to that grace and mercy, I plead with you to do it now. Let's stand, let's sing this last song, and if there's any way we can serve you as a church, please let us know what that is. If you'd like to do that by coming forward, we encourage you to do that now. But please, let's all stand and sing about this Christ who intercedes on our behalf. Let's sing together. Let the King of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, oh, he is my song. Let the King of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, oh, he is my song. You are good, good. You are.